There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. I'm driving to a podcast. A freaking Mel Brooks podcast. Hey, it's Chris Hardwick. I am driving in my car. Uh, but uh, safely using a microphone so that both hands are free to use the wheel. And uh, I'm going to go podcast Mel Brooks today, which is huge for me. I'm still trying to process that information. Um, I'm, I'm not going to turn into a stack of jello. Uh, yeah, I stack jello. I'm not afraid. I'll do it. But uh, that is very exciting news. So that'll be coming up on uh, on the Nerdist podcast very, 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 very soon. But tomorrow, which is November twentieth, uh, we're gonna put out the trailer for Neil's Puppet Dreams, Neil Patrick Harris's show, where he sleeps a lot and when he dreams, he dreams in puppet. It's a co-production with the Henson Company and uh, and Neil Patrick Harris. So the trailer for that goes up tomorrow, and Neil's Puppet Dreams starts on November twenty second. Uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, November twenty seventh on the Nerdist YouTube channel, YouTube.com. Nerdist. Uh, see, I'm driving, so I, I can't edit this. Everything stays! I would also like to thank Stamps.com as our returning sponsor to the Nerdist Podcast. It's almost the holidays, for crap's sake, and you are going to be mailing a lot of stuff because people demand that you pay them tribute on the holidays. You have to send them things. Gift cards to Chili's or wherever it is that you send your family... That, that's what my dad said to me one year. He was like, don't send me anything. Just send me gift cards to, like, Chili's. I'm going to eat there anyway. Uh, so now it sounds like it's turning into a Chili's ad. It's not. I don't eat there. There. I just canceled that out. How about that? One time I ordered uh, a chicken salad on the off the healthy menu at a Chili's in Missouri, and I got a salad with ranch dressing and fried chicken. There. I've balanced it out now. Okay? Are you happy? Stamps.com, though, let's say you wanted to mail that salad to someone. You don't want to go wait in the post office. That salad's going to go bad by the time you get up to the window. Take it home, stuff it in an envelope, uh, go to Stamps.com. You can weigh it uh, with a a, a bonus, a postage scale that they're going to send you, and then you can send that salad to someone, their delicious Christmas salad to someone. Print out the postage from any computer, and uh, and you're good to go. So before you do anything else, go to Stamps.com. Stamps.com, click the radio microphone at the top of the page, and type in the promo code NERDIST, you're going to get a $110 bonus offer of stuff from Stamps.com, so please use it. Stamps.com, offer code NERDIST. This episode was, this episode was really special to me. It honestly was. I've known Jimmy Kimmel since I almost, I started in the biz. Uh, I started in K-Rock in 1995. I had just, the singled out show had just aired, or was just about to air, and I got hired at K-Rock and uh, became pals with Jimmy then. And then we kind of drifted apart over the years 
and uh, and I always felt bad about it, and I always felt like, what did I do? And it was, I feel dumb, and you know, and then, and this was so nice to actually just sit down. This is the longest conversation we've had in years, uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Jimmy's a terrific guy, uh, which of course you know if you watch the show and you see that he employs a lot of his family and a lot of his friends, and I always love that model. So Jimmy's a terrific guy, and uh, we recorded this. Um, just a couple weeks ago in his office at uh, the Jimmy Kimmel Studios. So here you go, the Nerdist Podcast number two, whatever it is that I can't remember because I'm operating a vehicle right now and it would be unsafe to go online to see what number that is. Let's say 284? Huh? If I get hired, does that make it less awkward? Oh, crap, there's a cop. Now entering... Nerdist.com You have a really great view of the high school track back there, which is... Uh yeah, Hollywood High School. I looked down on it, and um, I mean, literally, I looked down on, on <laughs> the yeah, public education the system. Thing, yeah. <laughs> I'm better than you. Uh, I pulled myself up. That's right. I'm an adult. I don't have to. Actually, I get very jealous watching them play baseball and run around on the field while I'm hunched over my computer working. Having to like every day because it's a wait, but it's. But comedy is an easy job, right? I mean, all you do all day long is crack jokes. What do you have to do all day long? <laughs> oh my God, it's a, I can't imagine. Because uh, I remember when, the, when Ferguson was on the show a couple of years ago, he said it never sank into his head when he took the job. Like, no, no, this is something you will have to do every day. This is an everyday kind of a kind of a thing. Well, I you know I started in radio, so That's I had true. that everyday pressure of. Well, you remember when I we were remember. working at K-Rock and all the nonsense that went on and how I was constantly pecking away at my computer and doing stupid voices and writing scripts for Kevin and Bean and uh, never never. I guess ended. that's true. At least this way you don't have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and they have food, which we never had at the radio station, <laughs> which is nice. For as big a station as K-Rock was in the 90s, it was... The most unglamorous setup you can oh, it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> and it still is, by the way. It's still big and disgusting. I mean, it's really like, it was embarrassing. You'd have guests come in and they'd say, hey, can I get a cup of coffee? And we'd be like, uh, hmm, y- yeah, I, I, yes, you can. Not here. Uh, I'm not going to get one for you because I'd have to go to a store. And we didn't have Starbucks back then, so it was like you'd have to go to the 7-Eleven. Or wait till because Daltz didn't open. There was like that, there was that restaurant yeah. in the basement, in the, in the lobby level. And we'd eat there so early that it always smelled like cleaning products. <laughs> Very appetizing. It's such a it's almost like being in a radio station for a morning show is almost like going into a bar. Yeah, when it's daytime, it's and, like being in a strip club in the morning. And you just you should never be there. It's <laughs> gross. It just like smells like breath. We're just like people respiring all night. The long. only people there are the weirdest people who work there, <laughs> like the engineer maybe, and you know, <laughs> some weird security guard that no matter how many times you come to work doesn't know who you are. Right. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yeah. that always happened. And then I got trained. Because I got hired to work on the morning show from just coming on the morning show. Yeah. And uh, and so it was very weird. And so I got hired on a Friday and started on a Monday. 
and I was trained by Boogerman, who was the overnight guy. Who tried to choke, choke you. To death. Yes. Yeah. You were trained by, this is a homeless person. I got a job at the radio station. You realize you replaced a homeless person. You, they fired a homeless person to make way for you. At the radio station. And as far as I know, he's still homeless. No, I mean, no. To be fair, he had a car. He, he, he lived in a van. Yes. He lived in a Volkswagen van. Yes. And it said Boogerman all over it. Yep. And he, I think he had like Bart Simpson characters glued to the top of the van. It's one of those guys that you know you see around town. He was always very nice to me, but I always sensed that like there was a breaking point, And there was a breaking point because he did try to murder you. Yeah, he, well, he just tried to choke me. Not necessarily kill me, but... Uh, and I'm the one who got him the job there. <laughs> And as I, I recall, I had nothing to do what, with whatever it was he tried to choke me over. What, what was, I don't even know what happened. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think Kevin and Bean were inquiring about his like girlfriend or something, and he started flipping out on them. And I happened to be in the studio, oh, and the I decided person. to be the one to to kind of sure. move him out of the studio. Right. And then he started choking me. And yeah. Yeah, it was no good. Oh, my God. I remember also going into the uh, program director's office, Kevin Weatherly, afterwards, and there was a little meeting about the choking, and uh, I was like, so what's going to happen here? And he's like, well, I don't want him to kill me. <laughs> I said, uh, all right, then I guess he stays. Let's keep the guy. Let's, let, let's send the message that this is okay behavior. <laughs> as long as you're dangerous, yeah. it's okay to choke. You can choke anyone as long as it's not the program director. <laughs> Everyone else is totally on limits. No issues, but you came from you. You came from wait. You you came to radio from Arizona, but you were from Vegas. Yeah, I grew up in. Uh, well, I was born in Brooklyn. We moved to Vegas when I was nine. I did college radio when I was in high school in okay. Las Vegas. Then um, I worked in a bunch of radio stations. I mean, I worked at uh, Phoenix, um, Seattle, back to Phoenix, uh, Tampa, mm-hmm. Tucson. And then K, uh, no Palm Springs, I forgot, and uh, then Tucson, and then K Rock in LA. I mean, I like it, it's funny how consistent the ra- for people who's never been to a radio station, the types of people that work at radio stations are consistent no matter what market you're in. There's like, oh, there's that guy, oh yeah, and there's that guy, and the engineer's crazy, and then it's like a sitcom. You've it got, really is. Yeah, this yeah, you got the crazy engineer who thinks. Who, when something's wrong, thinks you broke it or don't understand how to use it, even though you've been using it every day for years with no problem. You've got the um, program director who's probably too old to be programming a top 40 radio station and who's going to be in Tucson for the rest of his life if he's lucky. You've got the... um, uh, newswoman who was at one time attractive and uh, maybe had something going on with the general manager. Then there's a general manager who might be um, someone important's son sure. who might have a flask in his desk <laughs> and, uh, and the afternoon guy who wants your job. And It's surprisingly consistent. Everyone's headshot is like 15 years old. <laughs> yeah, like 15 years younger. than Stonewashed. The- and then you actually see them at live events you're like, what the fuck happened? But when I worked in uh, Phoenix, there was I worked at a radio station. It was, I didn't work there. I didn't get paid. I was just a, really a kid who called into the radio station. And they had a morning guy who was very popular. The station was hugely popular. I mean, hugely popular. So they had a morning guy named Bruce Kelly, and he had a sidekick named Maggie Brock. And there was a big concert, and they came out, and the whole audience cheered when they saw them. And then the, the midday woman came out, and the whole audience cheered. And then the afternoon guys, Mike and Kent, and the whole audience cheered. And then they brought out the night guy who was... <laughs> 
a, just a hugely fat. I mean, like 500 pounds fat. Like so fat, the Domino's pizza guy, and I know this sounds like a joke, cried on his last day on the air. He came, the Domino's pizza delivery guy came with a plaque for him and then wept. And when this guy, his name is Clark Ingram, walked out on the stage... The whole audience gasped simultaneously <laughs> because you hear somebody's voice, and in those days you don't go on the on the web and no. look, look them up. But uh, and then he just came out and he looked. My friend Kent said he he was wearing a blue jumpsuit. He looked like the sky with feet, <laughs> and um, and that's kind of the magic of radios because these people look whatever you have in your head. That's what they look like. But not so much anymore. It's all it's and we were we were around for that for that whole revolution. Kevin and Bean, by the way, I I really like them a lot. A lot of the morning show guys, you go around the country and you do these like these radio tours. A lot of the morning show guys, you sort of feel they're a little angry. Yeah. There's a little bit of you know because the, the, the it's radio is it's still a viable medium, but it's a little more unstable than it used to be. It's not, yeah, there's no um, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow anymore. <laughs> it's just you're there, and you don't know how long you're going to be there. You're just whiling. It's like a prison set. You're just whiling away the time. It really is true. It's I, Maybe it's just our perspective, but I'm so glad I'm not in radio anymore. I mean, it's I really I think about it at least once a week. I think, thank God I got out of radio because it's, it's dying. But yeah, that is true. When you call into a radio station... Um, I have to say, it's changed a little bit for me because on the rare occasion I do call into a radio station, they're generally kind of happy that I called, so they're on their best behavior. Sure. But I remember many days during the Man Show and Crank Anchors and stuff where they're kind of like, they have an extra something against you because you got over the wall. You made it. You know? <laughs> and you didn't take them yeah, where they you, want you, you to take not, you, know, you didn't throw the rope over and pull them with you. <laughs> And um, and also people kind of like um, I think people a lot of disc jockeys decided um, oh well Howard Stern um, says whatever he wants right. and I'm going to do that but they didn't have the kind of the paying their dues part leading up to that or the, the sort of brilliance I mean like it's Howard just has a, a very authentic honest like he's just who he is and rather than people just being who they were. Everyone just thought like, oh, we'll just bring some hookers onto the show, and then yeah. we'll say the word penis fifty times. They're like, ah, it doesn't. It's not really. It's everything. It's all the um, the icing, but not the cake. Exactly. The, kinda, that honest Howard that nobody had. And the icing is very bitter. Yeah, the icing is. <laughs> it's not a sweet icing. It's made of arsenic. It's, <laughs> it burns. It burns your throat. <laughs> and you tear up when you even smell it. But um, but we. You, so you you were at K Rock and then I got hired and this was like ninety five, and I remember you were on our show and our program director heard you and liked you and he hired you and then he did exactly to you what he did to me, which is he didn't bother to tell the guys who hosted the show that he was hiring you. That's right. And then it was kind of my job to figure out how you were going to fit in with the show. And the answer was not well. Well, I remember saying, I think maybe you should do a character or something because I know Kevin and Bean are not going to want you just sitting in there talking with them right, all the time. Right, right. Because Which, there's already two of them. Who can blame them? There's yeah. nothing, there was nothing wrong with that. And I remember after about a month of showing up, <laughs> Kevin uh, Bean, Bean said to me when I came in, he's like, ah, still showing up, huh? And it was just like the uh, first day I was there. They, I walked in, and I swear to God, this is absolutely true. I walked in the studio, and they said they hired you. <laughs> I'd moved out here from from Tucson. I packed everything I owned and my family and moved out here. I had We're two doing little it, guys. Babies. We're doing it. 
And they said, they hired you? And I said, oh, no. Oh, this shit. is very, very bad. Yeah. So, how, I mean, and since then, let me just say, you know, I've become very good friends with those guys. And, you know, yeah. being, we, we, you know, we talk very, you know. They're great really, guys, but it didn't make sense really to hire guys. somebody to. I don't blame them yeah. at all. Yeah. But how do you. I'm glad you got rid of those other two guys. <laughs> no, I mean, no. Oh, Jonah, wait. Oh, no, Jonah's, they're still on the. Okay. They're both working today. <laughs> By the way, they were super bummed. Matt's still working. Attack, Attack of the Show is in its death throes and Matt is kind of finishing up another month there and Jonah had to work today but Jonah was particularly bummed that he couldn't come because he you know Jonah is sort of a um, a, a renowned freeloader uh-huh. and so <laughs> when you started your show about 10 years ago the the idea that there was food and drinks here in the green room was legendary and so yeah. it was a it was a comedian nest I remember the first time, I think one of the first times I met Jonah, I saw him do stand-up comedy, and then the next time I met him, he was at the Arclight Theaters telling people to turn off their phones. <laughs> he was working at the Arclight for a while, yeah, he worked at the Arclight And I don't, for a while. I remember thinking, well, this is weird, and I thought, well, maybe he's just doing this to fuck around. Like, he's not really working with the theater, and he's just fucking around, but then it turned out he yeah, wasn't. He was actually working there, yeah, so... You know, I know Jonah had so many great experiences and stories here, but he just he just ended up having a work today. <laughs> but um, when, I'll when, mail him some beer. Would you send him a beer or yes. something? Uh, so when yeah, when I, I did not fare well at on the Kevin and Bean show because at a certain point I kind of just stopped showing up, and so that was a perfect oh, excuse yeah, for them that's to be right. like, he's not even showing up. And then right. Kevin was like, we're going to move you. Weatherly said, we'll move you back to overnight. So I went back to the overnight show, the midnight to five shift, which. You know, it was fine. So my point is, I did not navigate those waters well, and you managed to figure out how to slip in and uh, adapt to the program. Well, you have to understand, like, this is your introduction to radio is working at K-Rock, which is, like, the best radio station in the United States. Even doing the overnight shift was, like, a dream, is a dream for it most It was pretty guys. crazy. I, if I had tried to work in radio, I never would have gotten the job. It was just a weird accident, the way yeah. that it happened. And if for you know for uh, me, I'd been at, I'd been in much 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 worse situations, so I knew I had to make it work. <laughs> and I you know I remember I showed up the first day. And Kevin and Bean are both wearing shorts, and I thought I'd read somewhere that like if you wanted to fit in with people, you should you should dress like them. <laughs> so I I. I wore shorts the next day to work, and the program director Kevin saw me and he goes, "Oh no." Uh, what are you doing? It's <laughs> like, well, I'm wearing shorts. They wear shorts. I'm wearing shorts too. He's like, uh, he felt like he'd lost another one. Oh, that's really funny. Is, he, is Kevin still there? Right? What yeah, Kevin's there. there. Holy yeah. shit! That was a really fun time to be at K Rock because K Rock was really directing pop music at the time, and so we really it was a pretty sweet gig. Like, we got to it go was to shows and, and meet people. Adam Carolla just started as you know he's my boxing coach. We started became, within like the same couple months. You yeah, t- tell the story about Adam. Yeah, Adam was uh, well. I started at the rate. I got the job from working in Tucson, and um, I knew the program director. And he finally, I talked him into hiring me. And just as I was being fired in Tucson, and uh, I got out there, and then Adam was a local boxing instructor. And I was fighting this guy who was on the show, this guy, Michael, the maintenance man. We oh, had right. One of the of boxing yeah. match. And Adam called and volunteered to to uh, train me to box. And actually, he wanted Michael, but I happened to be the one that answered the door when he came to the back door. And so he trained me, and we became friendly. And I think we were there for about... I remember um, Jenny McCarthy was on the show promoting mm-hmm. her Playboy magazine. Right. And our former program director had 
um, gone on to program MTV and being oh, called Andy, uh, Andy Schoen. Schoen, yes. And so he heard her on the radio and wound up hiring her to do Singled Out with you. Yeah. And then the two of you came back to the radio station as guests. Yeah. And that's how that's you want that yeah, worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So with Adam, he just showed up and offered to train you. And, and it turns out he has this, you know, this rich background in sketch and improv and was actually a funny guy. He showed me a public access show that he did. I'd never seen a public access show that was intentionally funny before. Yeah. And I, I remember being kind of bummed that he was going to make me sit down and watch this VHS tape of himself. I thought, there's no way this is going to be good. And I couldn't believe how good it was. Yeah, because he's a boxing instructor. He's like a, a construction worker. Like, yeah, a contractor. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a carpenter and... So we came up with this shop teacher character, Mr. Bertram, and he would pretend to be a teacher calling in to give messages to his students because they listened to the radio station. Yeah. So it, it you know, became a thing, and then he went on to host Loveline and left me behind at the, at the morning show. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, you went on, because I remember when you, like the idea of crossing over from radio to television was pretty revolutionary. It just wasn't something that happened a whole lot. Yeah. And then you, uh, I think you went to Ben Stein from from the station, right? I did, yeah, the win Ben Stein's money. I think the only reason that there was crossover to television is because we happened to be in L.A. I right. think if we were in San Francisco, none of these things would have happened. Carson Daly worked at the station also. Yep. And, um, yeah, and we all wound up on TV, but it was just because people would listen to K-Rock and then when they were auditioning or whatever they'd say yeah call that guy and you know we were kind of in their heads on the way to work but it's interesting because we've had this <clears throat> I had a conversation with you a long time and I don't know if you know this but I'm being totally sincere when I say this that you like you were one of the you were one of a, a role models for me because you we we talked about it right after Ben Stein and things started to get going and you had the man show and crank anchors and all this stuff was happening and, you, and I said what did you do how did you do it and you go honestly I locked myself in a room and I wrote down a hundred ideas and I just, you know, I just work all the time. And so between guys like you and guys like, you know, Rob Zombie who you just go, oh yeah, I guess if you really do devote the majority of your energy to a thing, then that will reap rewards at some point. But it makes me sound um, better, I think, than the, than the truth. The truth is I was in there hiding from my ex-wife. <laughs> That's why I was in my room writing all the time. It wasn't some incredible work the, ethic. It was just me trying to get away. You can masturbate what? One, two times yeah, exactly. in an afternoon? <laughs> then, you, then the rest of the time you have to do something else with your hands. I did, and I probably shouldn't tell the story, but um, one time... I was, uh, we were doing the man show and we had like some naked girls and something. And, you know, it's, it's, I take it for granted now, but you don't typically meet, well, I don't, you do, I know, but you don't meet girls and then see them naked, you know? And like, so, especially in the workplace. Yeah. So we shot a bit and some girl was in the bathtub and I think she was like a porn star, but we had her act, whatever. And she was naked. And I remember thinking, this is just so great. You know, you meet her in her clothes and you cast her and then she's naked and then, you know, whatever. So I was watching some rough cut of some bit and there was a lot of footage and this girl's like naked through the whole thing and I'm in my office and I think, oh, I think I'm going to, I think I'll, I'll masturbate. <laughs> it's so genuine. I think I'm going to just do it. But the great part is Adam is also in this bit. So my wife walks into the room at the moment, Adam is on screen, and she comes in and goes, <laughs> he goes, are you masturbating to Adam? 
said, no, he just came on and just switched. He's sort of I'm dumb. I got my dick in my head. I'm trying to explain. <laughs> and he won't leave this. He was not here a minute ago. This just happened. Oh, it was, it was really embarrassing. But fortunately, she told everyone about it. So I, uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel bad about telling it now. <laughs> I know it was, it was, it was very, very, very embarrassing. That is, that is almost like a Three's Company level yeah. of sitcom misunderstanding that I never think actually happens in real life. It doesn't. It only happens. I know you to guys me. spend a lot of time together, but I didn't realize. Like you know, don't you think I could do better than Adam if that's really what I was into? <laughs> Well, she knew there was a love affair there, and uh, you know she didn't want to get in the way of it. Adam's Adam's really funny. I I, I feel like maybe uh, I don't know five five years ago or so we had lunch, and he was working on your house and he was building you an office or something. And oh, that know, was a long that was longer it was than longer that. Than that ago? Yeah. But I loved his logic. He goes, uh, Yeah, you know, I'm probably spending about thirty grand to build Jimmy an office, but he's probably gonna make me about a million and a half bucks in the next year. So I figure it's a good investment. <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's just building you this really nice office. He did, he did. But the one thing he didn't do is uh, is add any insulation. So when he'd open like one of the cabinets, you see these nice cabinets. But if you opened a cabinet, the earth is be- <laughs> like dirt is behind the cabinet door, and which I thought, all right, well, I just won't open the door. But uh, I realized that mold was growing um, behind that oh, door. Oh, gotcha. And um, so we never we moved is basically what we did, but. And then you sued Adam and got the million and a half dollars back. <laughs> but I always liked the idea that, because uh, uh, you know, obviously you drive your show, but it's definitely, it's not just that you have an ensemble cast on the show, but there's your life is sort of an ensemble cast of people that sort of recur. Yeah, I try to use that. You know, I think that's something I learned from Howard Stern using the people around, using the people at work on the show, and then. Uh, for me, my family members, I thought, I just really thought, how am I going to make this show different from every other talk show? Yeah. I have a band, I have a desk, I have an audience, I, we tell topical monologue jokes. And for me, I said, you know, maybe if I had my family as part of the show, that would be a funny thing. Yeah. And it did, it turned out, it worked out well. Because you, your monologue doesn't really feel like a traditional monologue, <clears throat> which I think is good. Well, we have a lot of taped pieces in it uh, to mix it up, because otherwise I just feel like it's... I don't know. It just feels like you're reading a series of jokes off index cards. Yeah. Otherwise, that have like a fifty-fifty shot of connecting. Yeah. And then it's like, and then the tone of your show is set right there, right at the top. It's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. these jokes. And also, just mixing it up helps. You know, like if if you you know if you're gonna do twenty jokes in a row, if you're lucky, fourteen of them will work well. But yeah. if you do two jokes and then show some tape comedy bit you come up with, and then do two more and show. Uh, clip of something stupid that happened and it, I think it just helps to throw the balance off. Well, not only that, but let's be honest, people today do not like to just listen to words. And, like They need to see things. They need images. They need to be distracted constantly. So I, I think it's really important that I... It definitely helps, yeah, yeah, because sitting there and watching a guy and probably half volume in the middle of the night just standing there talking about um, these politicians <laughs> you don't give a shit about anymore <laughs> can get old. Was it ever, uh, you, I guess now you and Adam have been friends for almost 20 years. Yeah, since 94, yeah. Was it ever, uh, because you guys ostensibly do the same kind of thing, was there ever any kind of weirdness? You're like, I got this show. Hey, you, got you know it. what? I have to say, there, um, 
we're, we're very unusual in that way. I mean, what, you know, I'd been in radio for a long time when I got to K-Rock. I'd been doing radio since, uh, you know, since high school, really, and professionally since I was in college. And he shot right past me when we were on the radio. And I was the morning show sports guy. And he came on and he did this character. And it was, Mr. Birch was very, very popular. And then he got Love on. He got his own show, which was like, it was kind of shocking to me. I was like, holy shit, this guy really, I mean, he flew right by me. Yeah. And I did feel like a little weird. But I never felt weird towards him. Really what I learned, I think, from that is... To um, I was always a big team player, but I think I felt like at that point you really have to make sure that you get you take some of these laughs for yourself rather sure. than spreading it around so much. And um, you just kind of have to do that if you want to succeed as an individual performer. And and so I did do that. I started focusing a little more on my sports cast and a little bit less on the show overall. And that's when I got offered Win Ben Sides Money and Fox Football and you know, wound up doing Crank Anchors and all these other shows. It's a good lesson, especially because in this business, well, I guess in any field, there will always be people ahead of you. There will always be people moving past you. And you can't, you know, if you do anything with it, try to be motivated by it and not like, well, I'm bitter now. Right. Fuck that guy. You know, like there's enough room for everyone to get their chance. It is hard to do. but It's very hard to do. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot easier to do when you're uh, you're doing well, you know. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. I would be horribly bitter. And well, I'm not saying I'm good at it. I just said it's a good thing to do. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you know, you would see, especially in the stand-up community... I mean, you know, it's, I know. It's, it's sort of like a lottery. Like, someone can just get a part in a thing, and it's like, phew, and there they are. And you're like, God, they they just started open micing. What the fuck? You know, it's hard not to. Stand-up is the word. Yeah, the it, there's not a – people are not rooting for you in stand-up comedy. I think, like, with Sarah Silverman, I think it was one of the first things that attracted me to her was she was genuinely happy for – her fellow stand-up comics who when they did well and and I was like wow that's um that's you know that's I thought new. I thought maybe I get the real story hey like like you know pretending but genuinely happy for these people and helpful um, to them and uh, you just don't see that very much in, in stand-up no not as well I feel like I feel like you see it a lot in the LA stand-up community and I guess it's be- I don't know why but I think I things mean, have changed or maybe something. they have maybe they have because I think that I think that sort of UCB environment has been... I've found it to be pretty supportive. Everyone's really nice. But, you know, you're still a human being. It's like if sometimes if you're down on your luck and then someone shoots past you, you still can't help but go, ah, that could have been... Yeah. But it is, I think it's important to sit down and, and really focus. Did you, did you really have a... How long did it take before you had a sense of who you were? Was that just all the radio training that by you the time you got to gay man? As a yeah. gay man who has his office uh, looking at a football practice. <laughs> and young boys running on a field. <laughs> young, strapping, sweaty, throbbing males. Um, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a very good question, Chris. And um, I say it because it's about me. Yes. Um, <laughs> because I, I, typically I would play a character on the radio. When I was on with Kevin and Bean, I was Jimmy the sports guy. And yeah. I did a bunch of character voices. And then uh, when I was on Win Ben Stein's Money, I think that was probably the first time I was myself on on television even the man show was a character really you know it was right. kind of a 
sure, you know, I'm not like that, you know, right. it's just, it was, but it, that was the show and it's definitely a part of me, you know, but um, we were focused on a specific audience and on specific stupid things. Right. And um, so I think this show really is, you know, for even this show, you know, it takes you, you're pretending to be a talk show host. I mean, you know, even though you are a talk show host, you still, you go through a, a period, like, I'm wearing a suit. Like, I never wear a suit. <laughs> I'm in a costume, essentially. I'm standing, I'm sitting on a piece of wood with a, a desk that I don't actually use. <laughs> I've got a desk for no reason. This desk. Just to lean on. It's, it's not just a leaning for post. To, to, for, to write on. It's just, yeah. The old-timey microphones, they don't do anything. It's there to keep my legs away from, <laughs> invisible to the audience. And, um. So I think you go through a lot of that before you finally just forget about uh, forget about all of it and just talk. It's hard. I mean, I would imagine. I think I think a late night show would probably be the hardest, probably the hardest job in television because you, no matter what happens, you have to show up to work every day, and and because you know there are a lot of other shows, it's like okay, I'm a white guy. There are other white guys. What? How am I different? You know, yeah. like what? What is it? What is it about me? And I and I guess. The the thing that was good is that um, I felt like you really got a chance to to develop the show and explore, and it seemed like they gave you you know they gave you the time that you needed to figure that out to make the show really solid. Yeah, they did. I'm, not, I'm still not sure why they did. I think it was part of it was um, everyone liked me. I think, and I think another part of it was they had bigger fish to fry, and you know they kind of weren't focused on us at all. Yeah, and probably still aren't. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know the. People, I don't get notes from the network. Nobody's really watching. It's just kind of, we're on, and there are certain times of the year that they pay attention. Sometimes we'll have a big show, and sometimes, you know, I'll host something or whatever, and then everybody has a comment. But um, otherwise, we just kind of, we're really left to ourselves for the most part. Yeah, I think the late night slot's really, because I think it's a difficult slot for them to have to reconfigure. And so I feel like late night slots tend to get a little bit more of a chance because they're like, we invested money in the show. It's a daily show. Let's let it go. Because you were filling politically incorrect space, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And a half hour in after that because that was a half hour long, that show. Right. But also, we, you know, the thing that probably saved us is we did have pretty decent ratings from the get-go. Yeah. And um, it's not like we they were losing money. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge leap of faith to keep us right. on the air. But did you, how long did you have the job before you felt like, okay, I think we're okay, rather than each week going, I, maybe we'll be back next week, I don't know. Well, I didn't even really think like that. I thought, I, I, there were many times where I just hoped the show would get canceled. I really, <laughs> I wanted the show to get canceled. Because if the network canceled the show, it wouldn't be my fault. I wouldn't have to explain to my staff, like, you know, I wouldn't have to go, well, I, I just can't do this anymore. It's right. too much. I'm sorry you, you all lose your jobs. So <laughs> secretly, I was, I mean, I was dying. I was exhausted. We we're doing the show live. It was five nights a week at that time. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no signature bits to rely on once a week. I had no guests many nights. I mean, every night was a mad scramble, and a lot of the pressure was put on me to find the guests. Yeah. And I just, like, I mean, it was. I, I was in a windowless office in the basement. I felt like a plant that was dying. I just... I, it just was not having any fun at all. I mean, it was really just a just a grind in every sense of the word. And I think you could kind of see it too if you watch. I, I never look back at those shows. I mean, <laughs> first of all, I'm just a mess. My suits don't fit. My sideburns are down to my neck, and 
It's just it's just so painful to look back at. Well, listen, for, fortunately, there's a permanent visual record of that whole period yeah. of time. That's <laughs> one of the great things. Get your home movies are available to everyone forever. Yeah, but it was it was it around? Because then you guys started to hit on something with was was it around the um, the Matt Damon video? Uh, I think that was a big. Uh, turning point for us. That was the first time we had something that everyone was talking about, and that I think you know that I don't know how I still don't know how many millions of views that got because it was before we had a YouTube channel. Yeah, and I remember at one time it was up to like forty million views. Jesus, just one posting alone. Many people had posted it, and that's just YouTube. You know, not doesn't count Hulu or ABC.com or any of that right. stuff. And um, that's when I think celebrities kind of noticed the show and said, oh, yeah, that might be, uh, you know, I could be funny. I could be a part of that. And, yeah. and then, of course, the Ben Affleck video was, you know, like We Are the World. It was a, a big deal. And we had people calling, asking to be a part of it. And, and, and you know, just kind of everything you could ask for. Although there was a little bit of a backlash from the whole thing because after that, after those videos... Every celebrity who was on the show wanted to do a huge viral video. Oh, and it's sure, like, sure. It's like, you have to explain everybody. It's like we don't have just a, like a trunk full of those ideas. They, <laughs> you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes they're big. Sometimes no, no, you'll not. just make a viral video and you make it, and then fifty million views, right? I can't tell you how many times they're like, "Yeah, they want to make a viral video." Like we're doing a television show here. <laughs> you might as well say this because now, like when you. Uh, if you if you ever get a breakdown of what all the networks are looking for programming wise, they, it's always funny. They go, "We're looking for the next big thing." You're like, "What would you, when would you not be?" So why don't you just say you want a billion fucking dollars? I want a billion dollars. Just boil it right there. Yeah, exactly. That's that's essentially what they're saying, and you can't. It's you you know you can sort of I mean having been work you know like building this YouTube channel. You can approximate. You go, well, you know, if this has this element, this element, more people might be inclined to share. But you never have any idea what people are really going to go after. When I was on the radio, um, I would frequently, the listeners would send me these casting breakdowns. And they would say, looking for a Jimmy the Sports Guy type. And and I was never contacted for any of the jobs. I am <laughs> Jimmy the Sports Guy. No, we said type. That's <laughs> not, not him. really like a weird thing. There's this strange disconnect. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you're looking for a Jimmy the Sports Guy type to call him. <laughs> no. No. No, we just want the type. Let's run an ad looking yeah. for the type. Yeah. And then, Jimmy, could you come in and help us coach some of these Jimmy the Sports Guy types we want to we I've been in that kind of a situation. You know before. what that is? That's that's entertainment business friend zone. <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah. You're in the friend zone. It's, you're not going to get the job. They're just aware of you and they're you're pleasant. But you're you're not going to be the one that actually I'm convinced gets it. that there is a department that works at every network that their only job is to have meetings with performers to satisfy their managers. Like they don't greenlight shows, nope. they don't actually do anything. They just have the meetings because I've had so many meetings where I, you know it's like wow that was great and then, and then you know my manager would be like yeah they loved you and I was like never hear from obvious them. they love yeah. you never ever hear from them again at all yeah it's it, there's a there's a whole middle management thing and I think what they do sort of like you say I pretend to be a talk talk show so they go well I have to pretend to be an executive and executives have meetings <laughs> and I can always pawn it off on the fact that there's this committee thinking and that's why things never get pushed through but as long as I take pitches and meetings. I don't ever have to do anything. And maybe if I take enough meetings, they'll let me get to the level of the people who actually make the decisions. Someone will get fired, and then that then they'll they'll get promoted. And I'll have someone take my meetings for me. <laughs> and then that, that's right. 
but there is a whole level of middle management that's just like, why are you spending so much money for this whole layer when you could just go make stuff? Well, that seems to be coming to an end with, uh, you know, with YouTube and people being able to make things on their own. It's still, it's still present, though. It is now, and I think with movies, it will probably, probably always be that that way. But I think, though, I think it's so interesting when you make a video and you think, oh, this is funny, and then millions of people watch it, and you go, yeah, I guess it was funny. And then sometimes you make one and. It doesn't catch on the way you thought it would, and right. but it's just it's a very democratic way of, of of determining whether people like something or not. It really you can't is. blame it on promos, like you know. In showbiz, we have so many excuses. You know, it's like, well, they didn't promote it. Right. They put it on Friday nights. Time slot. They did this. Opposite they, the Olympics. Yeah, you know all this stuff that we all these excuses <laughs> we have for everything that goes wrong. But YouTube is just like it's on YouTube. It <laughs> is or it isn't, and you can give it a push maybe at the beginning. But ultimately, if it's great, people are going to spread it around. Your postmortem report on those videos are like, well, after a lot of research, we determined that 13-year-olds thought it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. That's what I Great. But it, uh, it's, I think you sort of – I think you came in – you started to show exactly at the right time because you – you sort of got grandfathered into the sort to the digital age that we're in now. So you had enough of a footing in traditional media that you you had enough of an audience to create this sort of. I mean, you guys make some really great uh, web web clips. Well, that, yeah, we you know the fir- our first show we showed a clip of Andy Milanakis um, singing the Super Bowl is gay over and over again, <laughs> and that was a YouTube clip that you know when YouTube wasn't so popular, and um, it really I, yeah we really did get lucky. I mean, I feel like in a way like I think the days of talk show hosts well I know they are making thirty million dollars to host a late night oh, talk right. show are gone. I feel like I got in just in the tail end of being able to make a decent amount of money. Right. And that in five years that will be completely gone. Oh yeah, television networks now don't have the same kind of budgets anymore like you used to. And when you work for a while, the, the way that it used to work was very much like a traditional business. You would have a quote and then you would go work on another job and then they would meet that or raise that quote. And now the whole idea of quotes is they go, well, this is what we have. This is it. Do yeah. it or don't do it. Yeah. And it just, it's just not the same anymore. I guess it makes sense. It makes more sense that way in, in a way. And I think it opens up more opportunities for more people. Yeah. Which I feel like if I, had, if I was 10 years older, there's no way I'd be on television. I, I just don't think I would. I'm, you know, when I got hired on Win Ben Signs Money, Comedy Central was a, a nothing network. I mean, it was really nobody watched it. South Park and Win Ben Stein's Money premiered the same week. Oh, wow. And um, they had no hit shows on Comedy Central. There's a lot of Kids in the Hall reruns. Yeah, a lot of that. When, when, uh, whose Line? Whose Line is it anyway? The British, came, the British Whose Line. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, I think that came on after us even. And um, at that time, I remember when they were selling the show, and this company that made the show, the last place they wanted to sell it to was Comedy Central. They said, <laughs> worst comes to worst. Comedy Central is interested in the show. And I remember thinking, well, that doesn't sound so terrible. That would be kind of a fun place to do the show. But they were hoping to get it on, you know, in syndication or on some big network or something. But, you know, I was a kind of small player on a small show and on a small cable network. And um, had that, I not had that opportunity. I don't think, you know, there's no way if if I, you know, I I would have been on a sitcom or something. I mean, It just wouldn't have happened. It's so funny. I always thought I wanted to... When I was younger, I always thought, like, oh, a sitcom, that's what I want to do. I want to... It's either SNL or a sitcom. That's the perfect 
scenario. And now I think about it, and I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to be stuck on a sitcom because a, a lot of them are not great. Yeah. And you really can't do anything else. And, you know, it just sort of, I, I don't know. I, 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 it would have to be a good one. It if it's a be, good one, it's great, you know. But it's so hard to, so many things have to happen for something to be good. Yeah. And a lot of them are accidental. We're sort of like you said, like, well, no one paid attention to our show, so we were able to sort of sneak through. You just have to fall, you have to slip through the cracks somehow to have the show, you know, become what it's going to be. For sure. And I also think the other thing that I always realize is no one was going to do anything for me that I had to come up with material for myself. I had to come up with ideas for myself, you know, and that I had to write something for myself yeah. if I wanted to be on because... You know, I went to auditions as an actor. You know, even though I wasn't an actor, my agent was like, "You should go to this and that." And I, you know, I wasn't good at it. I, I, I didn't know how to do it, and it just felt stupid to me pretending to be playing a scene out right. um, with you know some lady in a, a folding chair, and <laughs> it just it just all seemed ridiculous to me. And I knew that if I wanted to do anything on television, I was going to have to write it for myself. Yeah. And so, and but now, I mean, you, you could do that in in a half an hour. You could put something up on on the. That was very it's kind. Of internet culture on your beha- on your part, but before that was really a possibility because yeah. this was like mid to late nineties, and so it's not like the internet was really. You know, I started with like being interested in doing little things for public access television, you know, and I I was a part of um, uh, Don Barris, our warm up oh, yeah, guy at yeah. the show. His uh, he had a, a public access show. I would go and do that, and um, that eventually became Windy City Heat, the Windy movie City. we made. <laughs> and um, and so those little things, I always got a kick out of you know just little local TV things that no one really saw, but it was just fun to make a TV That's right. show. I, we just I, I I hadn't seen you for a long time, and then I ran into you at the comedy store. Because Don was doing the uh, the thing with the guy from Windy oh, City. Oh, with Perry, yeah. With Perry, where... <laughs> this was the fucking weirdest thing. Yeah. Where it was like, like years ago, Perry was... It was the a, 20-year anniversary of Perry being molested by a casting director. <laughs> now, Perry is uh, probably 52 now, and... There was a casting director that took advantage of him, and Don had a big party. People flew in from not just all over the country, but from all over the world. But it, because they listened to the, Don's podcast, the Simply Don, the Big Three podcast, yeah. and um, yeah, they had a big celebration of um, of the hand job Perry had to give a casting director. Because this casting director basically said, uh, you know, give me this hand job or you'll never you'll never work again. Yes. And so you know, and his justification was like. I'm not gay. I just, <laughs> you know, I was just doing it. His big thing is he blew me. Yeah, I didn't blow you? him. <laughs> and they and they brought the picture of the guy. I printed those up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how much does Perry? How aware is he? Um, of of what? <laughs> of everything. Like, does he? Do you think he? Does he know? And is he kind of playing it? Or do you? No. He really doesn't know. He really doesn't understand. I mean, he understands that people are. He just doesn't understand why people are interested. And in all he cares about is they get to they get to be they get to make a movie and they get to do a podcast. That's what's so funny is it? It like the the genius of that movie and just the whole concept of Perry is by all rights. He's a guy that you should feel bad for, and everyone should be mad at you guys for doing what you did to him. Yeah. And then almost every time he opens his mouth, you're like, God damn it, he's such a dick. I just get, That's just, the magic of Perry. 
But the truth is, he's not so different from like anybody that comes to Hollywood. He just wants to be famous. He doesn't care right. what the delivery method is. Right. He doesn't care if he's, you know, people say, I, I love to act. I want to act. And it's like, oh, guess what? We, uh, we have a job offer for you. You can be a host on QVC. I, I'll take it. Yeah, you know, like, he's more in the he's more in the Dennis Woodruff Angeline camp. He will do. He just wants to be famous. Yeah. Yeah. And does he? Do you hang out with him often? Or no, no, no. Okay. But um, it's I do have a signed skateboard from him right here. Oh, there he is. He says uh, uh, to Jimmy Kimmel, "I'm so honored to have you accept my <laughs> apology last night." A lot of um, a lot spellings. Of, oh, I didn't realize apology had two P's in it. It, it does for is that, is that a smartphone app? Apology where you can apologize to people if you have a smartphone? That's a great idea. <laughs> you should get on that before this podcast goes on. <laughs> Delay the airing of this oh, podcast. Shit, until I can start apology. Yes. <laughs> that, and now, now, I guess I now owe Perry. And now, Your Honor, he didn't know what he was saying. I would say that um, especially people that listen to your podcast that if they've not seen Windy City Heat they, they should, should they should make a point I think it's on Netflix and you can get it on Amazon but um, if people think it's fake a lot of people think it's fake it is not fake well you know you've seen him in action it's 100% real he's so angry yeah. I'm not a homo I didn't yeah I gave him a hand job but I didn't let him suck my you're not a homo he just kept saying he's I'm very, not a homo he's very homophobic very he's, homophobic uh, he's every every bad thing you could imagine <laughs> <laughs> mixed into a guy that you should really feel sorry for, but he just makes it impossible to feel sorry yeah, for. Yeah, he does. It's, it's, such <laughs> a, it's a perfect blend. He really is. Um, and then you you had Furman and I on your show a couple times, which was great. Uh, Tony Danza was on both of the times we came on. Was he on both times? Both times. Wow. We If we were playing Danza Roulette... That was the that was the golden age of television. <laughs> he was on both times. Both huh? times, Tony Danza was a guest. Well, did yeah. you have any encounter with him? Did you well, speak we just to met him? him backstage, and uh, and uh, smaller guy than I would have thought. Very soft hands. Very sweet man. Mm-hmm. He was really he soft. Was, hands. He did very soft hands. I shook his hands. I was like, hey, what do you expect Tony Danza? I guess I just bought into the mythos of Tony Danza. Like, no, he's out back, like punching through boards. You know, <laughs> now his hands are very manicured nails, very soft. Like, I wonder if he would. Take Take that as a compliment or as an insult that he has soft hands. Uh, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. If we ever have him on the podcast, I'll, yes. I'll see. I'll see how he reacts. Hook, to link it. me in so I can hear. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> over the years, I, I feel like you know I would run into you at various times, and and uh, there was a period of time where I thought Jimmy doesn't like me. I don't know what oh, it is. Really, Jimmy doesn't like me, and I don't know. What, and then we had an encounter. It was right after I gave up the booze. And you wrote me this really long email where you said, you know, the truth of the matter is I was really worried about you and I really thought you were like... Yeah, you were, uh, you were hitting I was it pretty fucking, hard. But yeah. when you're doing that, you don't realize you're doing it. Oh. You just think, oh, no, I'm awesome and everyone should think I'm awesome. <laughs> and I would run into you or run into you and Sarah and there was a little like, oh, hey, hey, Chris. And now after I, that I have like almost a decade of being on the other side of it... I go, oh yeah, when the drunk guy comes at you, you instantly just, yeah. your walls go up because you just don't want to engage him. Cause he's it's, it is weird to be uh, in that situation, and I get it a lot where you're, I'm the not drunk guy, and yeah. then there's enthusiastic drunk guys around, <laughs> and I, I try to be friendly, you know, but so I'm just hard. kind of scared, usually. It's know? scary, and then, and then you know, when you're not drinking, what, what goes through my mind now is that when people get drunk and in my face and all slobbery, even if their intentions are good, I just feel like... 
this conversation is fake. You're not going to remember it tomorrow. Yeah, what's the point of this? I'm going to end up, you know, having to shout over all the noise to tell you things you're not going to remember. It's very fleeting. It's yeah. so pointless. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I guess if you're both drunk, then it's it then kind it's of works great. out okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but you both have to be at the same level. Yeah, right. But it's so funny. I guess I always, you know... That oh, was yeah, a, now I do remember that now, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was sort of another, another thing. You kind me. of became a different person because when we first met... You were not like that. No. And um, um, but then, yeah, then 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 you start drinking a lot. And uh, I mean, I always liked you, but I also I don't like to be around people who are drinking a lot. I don't blame you. And, <laughs> and it really was it was a dark time, and you know, my life could have gone two completely different different ways. But it really was because of you know guys like you and Greg Barrett and Jimmy Pardo. But that was a tr- that really meant a lot to me that you took the time because I really felt like oh he actually does ca- it's not. I built up this whole narrative in my head. Oh, like oh, I, what the fuck, you know what he saw on television? That like it was that it was, oh. it was like the old town, <laughs> the old town, you know, b- buddy who was on the football team. Oh, you're too big for your friends now. <laughs> when really I was the cause of it the entire. I just had no idea, but it was very helpful to me, and I really, really appreciated oh, that. Uh, it was very sweet. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, stuff like that. It's um, most people don't take it like that. I think that's. Uh, Good, but I do always feel like it's it's important if I do likes if I don't like them I won't say anything whatever is to is to um, uh, just confront that kind of stuff because uh, I feel too guilty afterwards if something bad happens and um, and I didn't say anything. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, especially because it's you don't it's a very hard line to ride because it you can instantly put people on the defensive because they'll be like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? It's not you're the problem. I don't have the problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, so I, you know, I, I try not to. I just sort of leave people be because I feel like, well, I hope they, you know, if they ask me, I'll be honest about it. But right. I don't, you know, I don't want to. Well, I think it also depends upon the like kind of depth of your like relationship. Like, you know, we were friendly. We we're never really friends or anything like right. that. But I always liked you, and um, and I, you know, I always, I mean, I think you remember, I was trying to get you on the, you know, working into the radio. St- Show well, and yeah, like that's whatever. right. We almost uh, you um, I think we had meetings at your apartment trying to figure it out. Well, your your one of one of your producers, Josh, right? Uh, Josh Weintraub. Yeah. Josh reminded me that we almost did a radio show together at Y One. That's right. And I completely had forgotten that. And we were like really an inch away from doing this radio show. And I think ultimately what happened was. I think, you know, you just sort of... It was hard for you to leave... You didn't want to leave K-Rock. Yeah. And, which was a smart thing to do because... Well, it wasn't even that. It was... Um, I, I felt too guilty to uh, um, to go against Kevin and Bean. I really... Yeah. I, I Like, I really, like... T- I talked to both of them and to Kevin Weatherly, the program director, and I just couldn't do it. I just, I, I was, just felt like I can't do this. And it turned out to be a very good thing that I didn't because about two months later I got Win Benstein's money and um, you know wound up yeah. eventually no the Man Show actually I got the Man Show and wound up leaving um, radio altogether. Well, it, the uh, it was easy. It was an easy decision for me because I was you know I was making like I think seventy five dollars a shift or something yeah, right. at K Rock and so it just wasn't only working like three nights a week it just wasn't enough money and then I actually you know get this really great offer to go do morning radio plus you hadn't been in the trenches with those guys I mean when I got to that radio station I think we were ranked like 22nd or something in the market yeah and you know we worked hard and kind of built the show and then I just felt weird about I just even though they offered me a lot more money to go uh, 
to the other eight. I was just like, I just can't do this. I just don't feel right about it. Yeah. Well, it was good. That, it was good that you did. I mean, I, the, the show that I ended up doing with with uh, Cortland Cox, who was yeah. great, recording, yeah. really really sweet guy. Um, you know, that was when when anyone tried to come in and take on K Rock, it was just it was not a good. Yeah, it, it was, was not tough. a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't make it easy at K Rock either. No, no, especially because radio. It just takes a long time to build up a radio audience, and it, they're never given enough time before like a Spanish station group swoops in and, and yes. takes over, and that's what ended up happening. It became like Super Estrella, Uno Siete, you know. So it, yeah, these stations that we don't even know exist are hugely popular, like the most popular stations yeah. in town by orders of magnitude. It's true, and all we know about them are the crazy billboards that you, you know, <laughs> men that look like the devil <laughs> upside down on a billboard. What do they do? I don't know. I think there's the tubas or something. <laughs> you don't even know it that it's an advertisement for a radio show. It could be some <laughs> weird horror movie or something. <laughs> well, uh, uh, when you're now that you've been doing everything that you've been doing, you, I was watching some of the clips from the show, and you really do get these kind of like pantheons of people together in one room. Like it's pretty amazing. Like oh, there's. I mean, not not that I. Not that I'm like a Lindsay Lohan fan or whatever, but to see like, oh, you got Lindsay Lohan and Jessica Biel and Jessica Alba and, and like nine other really famous women in the same room for a sketch. You know, it's kind of super frenzy. Yeah, that's what I like about it. Is like you get to see, and I like to reveal them one at a time so you yeah. can kind of see. The, but the original idea I had for that was... I wanted to have all Jessicas and all Jennifers. <laughs> so be, you know, Jessica Beale and Jessica Alba and Jessica Simpson and and like and I wanted to separate it by by name because Jessica and Jennifer they seem to um comprise about 63% of the most beautiful women in Hollywood and are <laughs> named one of those two names. And um, and then I wanted to do I forget what the last one I would do is like oh like the Beyonces or something and there was only one Beyonce I don't know whatever the stupid idea was but we couldn't get enough of each name together so we decided to mix it up and uh, and put them all in one exercise well three exercise videos are you how how involved day to day are you in the in the writing process extremely. I mean, I can, you, I can you let control go, or do you no. have to have your hands on everything? I have to. I mean, in the morning, I get um, all the material from the writers. I go through it myself. I whittle like thirty-five pages down to two or three pages, and then um, the writers will write the scripts. I'll edit all the scripts. We'll shoot the bits. I'll help edit the bits. Um, I approve the bits sometimes five seconds before the show starts. I write the mo- I rewrite the monologue from four to six p.m. Um, just at my desk, and then send it to the teleprompter, and then we go. And then by about uh, nine p.m., you're brain dead. Yeah, no, actually, I'm. I feel okay. Yeah, I feel all right. I really don't. Uh, I don't have that thing. I don't know what it is. I just, you know, I just kind of. It's just part of my day. And you don't seem like a stress case. Like you seem like a pretty like. Well, you know, we'll just get through this, and it's, we're pretty. Everything's pretty easy going. Yeah, I mean, you can't help. I mean, if, if I was, I'd be dead by now. I mean, you just can't help it. You, when you're doing the show every night, it's like it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. I mean, you could have a huge fight with. Someone you could, uh, you know, have someone in your family's very sick or, you know, you're sick yourself or whatever's going on. It doesn't matter. You have to go down and do the show. And it's weird almost. It's like it is a little bit robotic that I can put all of those things out of my head. I guess you learn to compartmentalize that you can that you can still be like 
you know, you, you and Sarah were together for a long time. You broke up. You still had to go do the show. Like, you're a guy going yeah. through a breakup, but you still, every night, have to be like, going on the show tonight, we're going to look at uh, the Cougar yeah. Cubs, <laughs> you know, and you still have to be excited about it. It's true, and uh, it's weird. It is weird. But I would imagine that there are probably more extreme, like, you know, like, the, the president has to do this sort of thing. And even, like, newscasters, like, you know, when you see what these guys are doing you see Larry King's wearing jeans by, you know, and he's interviewing the Prime Minister of Israel or something. And you're like, well, that's weird. And then you realize, oh, yeah, because they're just they're just guys and doing their job and then going home. You, you, uh, you had one of my favorite jokes with, I think you, something you said to Sarah once, where you go, hey, guess where I'm going to fuck you later? I'll give you a hint. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where, where did that happen? That couldn't have been on TV. It was definitely not on oh, television. Yeah. It was just, I don't it's know. It's funny you remember that. but uh, it was just like at the improv or something. Just to, for Sarah, I would say that that was purely a joke. That, yeah. <laughs> that did not actually happen. I don't think anyone has ever gotten to have anal sex with someone by going, here's where I'm going. <laughs> I mean, You're probably right. Kirstie yeah. Alley's book. Maybe in prison. <laughs> but yeah, no, not in, in the outside world. That just becomes like the butt mating call. Just like when you hear that, like, oh shit, my ass is going to get fucked. <laughs> what, what do I do? <laughs> I can't stop it from happening. Well, you know, if you can't stop it, what are you going to do? I think you just have to go with it. Yeah, like or Shawshank. You give, you, give, you give a copy of Kirstie Alley's Yeah, we have book. a copy of Kirstie Alley's book here. I just got it. It's called The Art of Men. I haven't read it yet. I wish I could give you a synopsis. But one of the chapters is... Um, there's a lot of stuff about the ass. But one of the cha- chapters is <laughs> anal sex. There's... Uh, yeah. I don't know why I'm promoting this. But um, it looks terrific. I'm going to read that. Soon. Is she, was she on the show? She will be on the show next... Or this week or next week. So, I don't know. Soon. How, you know, in the podcast format, I feel like we have the we have the luxury of like we can talk for an hour, and it's like you yeah. can let the conversation unfold. You know, when you're when you're doing your show, it, I always I always think to be it's a rough format because you have like quick, digestible, bite sized yeah. segments. Well, you have no no time to meander. It's you know, and there kind of has to be a beginning and an end. Yeah, you know, and because the worst case scenario is when somebody's in the middle of an anecdote, and I look at the clock and I see that. We are over time, and we're nowhere near the end of the story. <laughs> and usually what I will do in that situation is wait until they're finished and then ask them another question. <laughs> follow-up question in three parts. Just because I like to torment myself. But, you know, and then it you know, it's, it screws everyone up after the show. They have to edit the show, and uh, it's a pain in the ass. But it is weird. It's like some sort of speed dating, you know, that you just sit down and have a a timed conversation with a person who's probably a stranger in most cases and um, they have to kind of instantly be interesting but um, you know I try to keep it fairly loose and you know the better the guest the um, looser it can be and um, you know sometimes you go on a talk show and it's you feel like you're doing a play right you know it's like you have you're gonna say this you're gonna say this and it's uh, I don't know I think that's if somebody's really good at doing that, it can work well, but most of the time it doesn't. Well, it's hard because you have to – I'm sure there are things that you are genuinely interested in talking about, but you're like, well, the publicist is here. They're here to promote a movie. I have to ask about the movie. We have to yeah. show a clip of the movie. Maybe I have time for one random question to sort of you know, keep it fun. Yes. But it, it seems like – it seems very restrictive – it is, it is. But there's, you know, random things do happen. And usually it happens right at the beginning of the segment. Something happens on the way in or they're dressed 
weird or something strange or whatever, and that's when you can kind of get into some. Then you realize all the work the segment producer did on this interview is right out the window. <laughs> well, I remember when the first time we did the show, the first time I did the show with Furman, Steve Carell was a guest. Oh, and yes. I thought it was a bit you guys are doing. He started sweating so hard that it looked like he had like a tube under a under a wig that was just dumping water down the front of his face. And you even come, you're like, are you okay? It was like broadcast news. I realized, like, I was going to ignore it because I figured people can't see this at home. But then I realized they can see this at home. <laughs> it, was it was a weird cascading thing. cascading down his face. Because I love Steve Carell. And at that time, he wasn't, you know, this Steve Carell. No, not now. quite yet. But he'd been on the on the Daily Show so much. and But I, I don't know, something about the talk show format, I think. Or maybe it was just hot. I don't know what it was. But he, he sweated more than anyone, I think, has ever well, there, sweated on I the think show. There, there are some guys. There are some guys that you know, like if they have more of a sketch background or improv background, they'll they will do any character and they'll commit to it 110. percent But then when you sit down and look them in the eye and you're like, so what do you like as a person? They're like, I don't. Like. Maybe he was doing the sweaty character. Maybe it was a good. Was it, <laughs> and that's how committed he is. That it was literally pouring down the front of his face. It worked. Whatever it was, it worked. Uh, Robert Pattinson was pretty nice on the show last night. Yeah, he's a nice guy. I feel bad. I know it sounds crazy. Like I feel bad for that attractive millionaire. But uh, but <laughs> well, he does a funny thing where he lies all the time. He'll make lies up in interviews, and then they get reported as fact. And he just kind of doesn't care. And like he will tell you like he's living under a an archway or some weird thing, and then sell it as if it's he's totally serious about it. I don't know if he does it to entertain himself or what, but it's just so kind of weird. a funny thing, and it makes it a little bit tricky to do an interview with him because I don't want to seem like a, a rube, you right. know, but... But my job there is to is to accept answers as true. <laughs> so, you can't just go. I know that's not true. Yeah, none of that's true. <laughs> no, you can't. That's not true. And either. even that, some of the stuff is so mundane, you wouldn't even you know you wouldn't challenge it. But he does. He makes stuff up, which is, it's kind of funny. But he does. And it was really. It's like there was a ton of security here last night. Yeah. And and then uh, Kristen Stewart showed up, and then like the security got even tighter. And it was just, yeah. And I'm just trying to think about their lives. Like they're just two young people. And they have to live this really weird, isolated lifestyle. Yeah, they hung out at the show for like two hours. After. They hung out because I think because they couldn't move. They're they, just they, outside, in. there were so many people outside just crowding the exits. You know, the best thing is you saw how many people were outside last yeah. night, right? Yeah. I wa- walked out to my car. Not one of them said anything <laughs> to me. Not, I was like, I had my head down. I was like, oh, I don't want to get caught in this crowd. Not one person yelled at my name. It was hey, Jimmy, crazy. what? Is uh, Robert Pattinson yeah. coming out? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> How do you, uh, when you when you do have someone on the show and it's like uh, you're on the show, it's crunch time, the show's happening, and they're just not giving you anything, what's your trick? Do you have a... What's your back? I will do the interview myself is usually what will happen. I'll start telling them about things from my life and just kind of... In fact, it's funny because sometimes people um, have fan groups that are excited that so-and-so is going to be on the show. And you know that this person is not a great interview. And so I will kind of... I'll talk more than I typically will. And um, usually what happens is their fans get mad. You talked through the whole interview. We didn't get to hear... But I've had... You know, get guests on the show that go. I don't do anecdotes. <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's like, all right, well, what are we gonna have? I don't a like to talk. On? I don't want to talk about the movie. I don't do anecdotes. <laughs> don't look me in the eye. They always want to talk about the movie. The movie they almost always want to talk about. I, I've gotten that sometimes too, where people complain about the podcast. They go, you know, you just talk. You didn't even get to hear him talk. And and what you can't explain to people is like, 
when you're looking someone in the eye, if you have any level of experience at your job, you have an automatic sense of when they're going to finish talking and how much they want to talk about. Because you can see their face. Right. And you know, like... This is about to end. This is they're gonna. This is gonna end in two seconds, and it's, there's gonna be a wall at the end, and they're not gonna give me a thing to jump off of. It's just gonna be a. And then that's when uh, we flew on the plane. Yeah, that's well. It happens. Uh, it happens a lot, unfortunately, and it really makes you appreciate the guests that come with with stuff to talk about. It. Oh, I imagine it must. Yeah. It just it must feel like it, when Letterman was on the show. Letterman was on my show in Brooklyn. He was very serious about preparing for the interview, which you might not expect, but he, you know, and he, what he said to our segment producer is, when Jimmy's on my show, he always has a lot of things to talk about, and he's got, you know, a lot of anecdotes and jokes or whatever, and so I want to have the same thing when I'm on, on his show, and it's funny because I kind of learned that from him, from just from reading interviews with him talking about how prepared Steve Martin is whenever he's on the show. And I remember making a mental note going like, if I'm ever on the show, I'm going to be very prepared and Dave will be happy and then Dave will like me and invite me back. And um, it's just weird to think about Dave um, sitting there thinking, what am I going to talk about on, <laughs> you know, on the Kimmel show? I'm just glad that he still cares, you know? Like, it's nice to hear that he still cares, not like, ah, fuck it, who cares? I, gonna... I think you always care. I think, I think probably the, uh, the healthiest people are the ones who don't care anymore, who just go, we'll just wing it, you know? It'll be fine. Yeah, because, I mean, for me, I, I obsess about these things, you know? Uh, when I go on a show... You know, I know what it's like to be the host and the guest doesn't really have anything to talk about. I also know what it's like to go on a show and get asked the same six questions over sure. and over again. And it's just like, you feel like, you feel like, like I could tell, you know, you, not you, but the host, I can tell you the answer, but I know that people who follow me have heard me answer this question 12 times <laughs> and I don't want to make them sit through this. You right. Know? Well, the, all the all the stuff that went down with Leno was amazing, and I, I know that's a thing that you've talked about a million times. But it really, it really was like holy shit. And I think it's one of the things that I don't. When I put myself in the position that you were in, I don't think I would have had the metal to follow through with. I've been like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I, I, I can't do this. I just felt like I had to. I really did. I mean, I felt like I'd be letting everyone down if I didn't. <laughs> and I, it would have been easier, and it was very uncomfortable, and it was really not, you know, not something that I was looking forward to at all. But um, I just felt like it's just it was would have been so dishonest to sit there and not talk about, you know, this again was in the heat of the. You know, the Jay Conan sure. battle that was going on. And for me to go on that show and to just give it a, you know, a brief mention would have been... I don't know. I just... If, if I was watching me, I would have went, oh, that guy's a dick. <laughs> but at the same time... I mean, listen, I don't know... I, I really don't know the behind the scenes of what, what really happened. I mean, I think I've been pretty public about that I was a Team Conan on that side of, mm -hmm. uh, of the equation. But... You know, it is just interesting that there have been two major late night wars in television, and he, he, he won them both. In both of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. He instigated them both. Yeah, like it almost—he's the Iran of late night talk shows. <laughs> <laughs> Why is everyone so mad? Like, like you know, he sort of plays. It. I mean, I don't know him, but I've never met him. I don't know him. He might be the loveliest guy in the he's world. He's a very friendly guy. I mean, you know, whatever. But I mean, listen, this is like he says Conan was his friend. He says Letterman is a friend. There are things you don't do to your friends, and, the, and those are two of them. <laughs> if these people are your friends, then that was not a right thing to do. But you know, he definitely. I do understand. 
it, it is it is something that I look at and I go, I wonder if I'm going to be that way in like you know 20 years where I just I need to constantly be in motion. I need to be working because it defines who I am. And if I stop for a second, then I'm going to fucking blow my brains out. Yeah, except for though, I mean, you're still able to do stand. I don't know. To me, it would have been a beautiful, graceful exit for Jay Leno who, you know, what, I don't know. But that, I, I'm not him. I don't know what goes through his head. Uh, I mean, maybe he just loves doing the show so much that he couldn't bear to, to leave it, even though he agreed to leave it in five years and... and he went through that whole crazy thing, but um, I don't know. He still got stand-up comedy. I'm, I'm sure if he wanted to do a show, people would find a way to give him a show immediately. I guess know? that's true. But I just do. You, do you feel like you? Is there is there a point where you go? Yeah, you know, after doing the show for a while, I'd be fine to just relax and yeah. not have to work anymore. Yeah, I would. I could do that um, at the end of the month, no problem. <laughs> give me time to pack and say goodbye to everyone. I go fucking crazy if I <laughs> if I stop. Like when I take a vacation, I cannot. Well, I do something else though. I mean, you know, for, I just. I, I mean, for me, it doesn't have to be something big either. It's like. I really like um, drawing and making t-shirts. <laughs> I love cooking and, you know, just for me, these are just like, it really just I get satisfaction out of people enjoying this stuff. So if I'll draw something, I'll then show it to everyone. Like, and this, you know, and funny, if I get the reaction I like, I'm happy. And then I'll go draw something else. Or if I cook something and people like the way it tasted, then I'm happy and I'll cook something else. Yeah. And it's just really the same. I mean, it's just all it's the same dynamic for me. Does the, So the, the, the success part of it and the fame part and the money part, did that, were you able to handle that pretty well in, in stride? Or does I think so. I mean, I think so. I just... Um, I had a very gradual ascent, really. I mean, it was, you know, from starting radio where people know who you are only if you want them to know who you are to, yeah. you know, cable television where I get recognized maybe once a week from Win Ben Stein's Money and then just very kind of just a, it was a gradual thing for me. So maybe if I was hit with it all at once, I wouldn't have handled it well. I think I probably would have handled it okay. Like 15, really like 15 years before you even really made it to television, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my first... I've been on TV for um, almost 20 years. And But even before that, there was like... A, and then there was radio before that, yeah. God, that's, that's amazing. I think it is sort of... I, I, I'm glad that when I worked at MTV that it didn't blow up to something bigger right then because I don't think I could have... I really don't think I could have handled it. It was pretty big, though. I mean, it was... That, was, that show was... It, huge. It was, but but what happened right after it wasn't huge, and I didn't know what to do with it. Right. I wasn't I wasn't touring as a stand up at the time. I didn't know. You didn't know how to turn it into money. No yeah. idea what to do with it. I just thought, oh, well, I'll just get another show, and then I'm like, right. oh yeah, that's actually really hard. <laughs> yeah. They don't just hand those out. <laughs> and I think you know, again, just kind of tying it all back together, and not not to be too gushy on you about it, but it really was after I got reflective and sort of straightened my life, and I looked at guys like you and Rob and. And just said, oh, yeah, that's right. You actually, you, if you want a thing, you have to just go out and make it. Like, no one's just going to fucking go, hey, here's your thing you always yeah. wanted. You know, don't worry. You don't have to do anything for it. I mean, that does happen every once in a while. Very but rarely. If you're Ashton Kutcher, it happens. <laughs> that really happened to him. It's like, he was a model, and then they, he got on that 70s show, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. But at least he still had to sit there and audition with, like, 30 other guys, and then they picked him, and he must have done okay, but... Um, it is. I mean, that's the uh, that's the the deal. Is you have to you have to be responsible for yourself. Yeah. Well, this has been great. We're just at about an hour, and I'm so glad. Uh, I I don't know if 
I don't know if you remember, but I asked you to come on the podcast like right after we started, and you're like, I don't have time. You know, you're like, I can't do it. Well, you know what? The truth is, it, it just becomes a nightmare for me. I understand. Because I know a lot of guys who have podcasts. Yes. And now that I've been on with you, yes. I, my e- please don't email me. I'm not doing your podcast. <laughs> it was, but it was a big, it, it was, it, I just have to tell you, like, on, honestly, on a personal level, I, like, when I saw the email, I was, I, I was hurt by it because I was like, oh, shit. And then I had to remember, like, it's like what you said before, like, well, Jimmy, it's not like Jimmy and I are good friends. We just know each other. Oh, you were. It's interesting because from my point of view, I felt like I had these people who were, I had this these people who I've known for longer than you that have these podcasts yes. who just wouldn't understand. And then I would have to go and explain to, to all, all of, of them, them. Yes. Even though I know that your podcast is going to be better than all of their podcasts. It, it becomes like I have a lot of guilt I have to deal with. I have a lot of anxiety. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course, especially you know, but you, you, Italian background, right? Yeah. So I have the same background. My mother, Italian Catholic background. Yeah. It is an economy of guilt. You feel bad about everything, and you want to empathize. You don't really have a choice. You automatically take on the emotional state of anyone that's near you. That's true. And it's very hard to process, and so you get resentful sometimes. I'm telling you in retrospect that I understand and that at the time I was like I was like, Oh my feelings are a bit resentful. Like, well of course. Because you start to get resentful when people ask you for stuff because you're like, shit, because I'm gonna have to say no, and then I'm gonna feel bad, and then they're gonna feel bad, and there's oh, nothing man, I can do about it. It really is. It's I, I wish I didn't have email because it's <laughs> I get asked for the craziest things. I mean, I get asked this is the crazy thing. People will be like uh, people in my life like Hey, who do you have on the show in uh, November? I'm like, really? You can't. Could you maybe uh, ask somebody else or look in the newspaper or something? I mean, seriously, do you have any idea how busy I am? Hey, how come uh, how come they ran those Taco Bell spots during your show? I don't know. I, I had a guy who was driving me in New York who um, sent me a text saying, "Hey, can I get the main number to the hotel uh, that you're staying at?" I'm like, I don't know. We have something called information. It's the Marriott. It's not like you don't know the name of the hotel. What goes on? And then I feel bad about not giving him that of course, information. Of and course. I have to struggle with it and look at it and go, am I going to look this up now <laughs> and text it to him? Or am I going to re- let him do it for himself? Well, because the problem is, because I'm sure people listen like, well, what's the problem? You just send the fucking number. And then you go, yeah. But then you're establishing a precedent. And then you're going to get five more texts from that guy asking you to do stuff for him. And not only that, he can find the number. It's just the same way I found the number. It would have been just as easy. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> but uh, but I, but I'm I'm thrilled that you came on now because I am uh, happy to make this my final podcast. <laughs> this ever. is your podcast farewell tour. This is it. This is it. This was the one. I'm so excited that you will never. <laughs> Sorry, do it. Adam. You'll ne- <laughs> that you'll never do another podcast again. <laughs> this was the one. This was the one. Well, I'm glad it was this one, and Thanks, I man. enjoyed talking to yeah, you. Yeah, you too. It's good to Hardwick see you. Hardwick works with no notes. There's no list of questions. No. It's all off the top of his head. I don't, yeah. I give you, what, like three hours notice for this? <laughs> it was it was, it was short yes. notice. Well, you did great. Thank well, thanks, you. man. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Enjoy your burritos, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. 
Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a Prince Charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. 12 American women are flown over to the UK for a Bachelor-style reality dating show. There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd. These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Harry. What? Y'all playing with me, right? You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.